The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. It's Friday morning. Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, back in the London studio. And these are your headlines. Well, it goes on. The rally rides up, continuing with all three U.S. majors closing. More than 1% in the green, hitting historically high averages for the month of June. The Bank of Japan sticking to its ultra-loose monetary policy, keeping rates in negative territory, even as inflation ticks higher. The decision has sent the Nikkei higher in afternoon trade, whilst the yen has weakened versus the greenback. The ECB hikes rates to a 22-year high as it continues to fight inflation in the euro area. President Christine Lagarde pours cold water on any hopes that the bank could halt its hiking cycle beyond the summer. We have hiked interest rates. Unless there was a material change to our baseline, we will continue to hike at our next meeting. So we are not thinking about pausing, as you can tell. European leaders tussle for Tesla's next production facility as CEO Elon Musk meets Italy's Giorgia Maloney in Rome before heading to Paris to headline the VivaTech conference this afternoon. And, uh, well, look at this, Carver whetting the appetite for investors for public offerings as shares in the uh, Mediterranean-style restaurant chain pop 100% on their debut. The CEO tells CNBC there's reason to be upbeat on dining. You're seeing the inflection point in the business and all of that robust infrastructure we've invested in, the new restaurant growth, starting to take hold and drive real tailwinds to the business. Right, I'll do that old guarantee, ladies and gentlemen, that by the end of this show, you will know more about the world of markets uh, than you did before the show, and I say that because we've got a great cast today, including Frederick Neumann, who's waiting to talk about uh, all things Asian with the uh, Japanese monetary policy and China and elsewhere. And Phil LeBeau is in the studio, so we'll pick his brain on what's going on in the electric car arena. Yes. Very interesting one of the headlines was about Tesla and the scramble to secure a gigafactory as well. You've been raising those very issues with President Macron, no less, in Paris about is Europe spending enough money? Yeah, it's really about the ecosystem, right? If you start to build one part of the process, the next part starts to turn up and then the next part. And this has been very much the story, at least from Macron's perspective, around electric vehicles. You need the battery uh, factories in Europe, you need all the components in Europe, then eventually you start to have genuine industry. But then, of course, there's another layer on top. There are other elements. Now, AI was such a big theme at yeah. VivaTech this year. And, you know, this is one of those trends. It's not coming quietly. It is super fast. And the amount of adoption you've already seen by companies across the board, and of course, this goes into autos as well. It's just super fast at this point, And nobody wants to be left behind. There is a but. Uh, and it's a big but. And I'm not talking about my big but. I'm talking about that the but is that the French talk a good book. And, and I, don't, I don't say this Dispassionately, I really want France and Europe to be a leader in many of these areas in spending on environmental issues, on renewables, on technology, what have you. The French talk a good book, as indeed do a lot of European politicians, but are they delivering the bang for the buck? And the answer, according to a lot of the biggest European CEOs, I'm not talking about our American cousins, I'm talking about European CEOs, is that, yeah, 
Don't even get me started on it. And I remember one of the biggest CEOs of a European company in Davos telling Jeffrey and myself off camera, he said, don't even get me started on the French. I said, well, what about these protestations? What about these promises? He said, don't even get me started. I mean, Arjun and I were talking about where different countries rank around artificial intelligence. And United States, China, Singapore, UK up there. Then we start to go Germany, France, the Netherlands. You start to work your way across the rest of Europe. You know what we'll do in Europe? And I say we because I consider myself a European. What we'll do then, we'll get really fed up when there's big American players and big Asian players coming in. And we'll start looking at the antitrust situation because that's what we always do. We, we start slow, we then have some minor players who can't gain traction, and then we look at these behemoths technologically on a global basis and say, oh, it's unfair competition for our European players. Why can't we have a level playing field? Well, the answer is there's a level playing field at the start. If you don't fund it enough with enough capital and innovation uh, and attitude, then you're always going to be behind the, yeah. uh, the, uh, the curve on this. On the funding part, if you look at what capital markets have done the last number of weeks, they have been stampeding into AI. It's almost a separate trend away from the macro. Well, it also skews the numbers. You talk about this level playing field. It kind of was in the last number of years around AI. Everybody was wading into that behind the scenes. But now with this stampede, you've got massive companies. And then on the other hand, you've got very, uh, what looks like low investment now from various different European countries trying to spur innovation around AI. So the, the playing field has just been, I think, even more dramatically shifting in the last number of weeks because of what capital markets have been doing around the story. What about equity markets? Well, speaking of which, let me just take you to some of the market action. We had a lot of it yesterday. And again, the Fed, the macro here is huge. The market digesting the Fed, just whether they believe we've got a skip that's happening now with two more rate hikes later this year, or whether the Fed could be more dynamic than that, perhaps even wrongly positioned around its commentary, and whether we're still going to be getting a rate cut at some point later on. Well, the market reaction has been stronger, and you can see across the board, one of the catalysts is that we've still got very strong labour market here that is providing some element of support, a cushion for any downward action, any recession that the market is worried about. And if you look at the various parts of the market, this is exactly the breadth that many have been watching for. 1% evenly splashed right across the major boards. Uh, this suggests you've got areas the, of the stock market that are actually gaining versus just the big technology names. That said, it has been a huge tech story again for the trading week. We've been up about 4% for the trading month. But across the board in terms of sectors, healthcare, actually one of the performers yesterday up about 1.5%. So again, that breadth is what a lot of investors are still looking for. Tech, of course, is rallying because of the AI themes. And you can see it over the weekly performance. Tech is up 5.3%. Very stunning move again as investors uh, reach for that area of the market. To the monthly trade, let's just revisit what we've seen so far for the month of June. And this is how it stands. Uh, high single-digit levels for the Nasdaq, 6.5%. Above the 5% mark, too, for the S&P 500. And in the range, still a split between the Dow and the Nasdaq, but uh, that is uh, not too bad in terms of correlation between the major indices. And if that's what we're looking for to suggest that this bull market has some maturity coming, it is correlation in the various different sectors that we're watching closely. To the Treasury markets, uh, as we've again had some decent retail numbers to watch yesterday, uh, this is what the bond markets are doing with the data and with the Fed dialogue. 4.67 where we're perched at uh, the short end on the yield, 3.73 at the 10-year. The dollar on the Friday session, uh, this is how we're trading. Sterling euro on the back foot dollar is 
certainly demonstrating some strength morning session. We're 127.79 on the uh, trade around cable, slightly uh, moving into a drifting territory. The euro dollar trade, uh, similar range, but look at that territory we've claimed. We're around the 107 mark in recent weeks. You can see we've popped above the 109.37. ECB, of course, just demonstrating, I think, to the markets through those numbers it was giving us an inflation that there's still plenty of work to do. It's not going to be until 2025 until we get even closer to that 2% target that the central banks are looking for, 2.2% by 2025. So it's not a next year story in terms of taming inflation. It is right out until 2025. And I think that is what has underpinned euro dollar. Dollar yen rates 140 today. They are a weaker trade for the yen, firmer for the dollar by about a third of a percent. Quick look at the Asian markets to round up Friday. Right across the board, we are chasing more gains again. And look at uh, the Nikkei 225. That has been really the stand-up market. 33,500 is where we're perched, up 80-odd points, another quarter of 1% steep. So oh, we've got a real treat. Uh, Frederick Neumann's joined us, Chief Asia Economist at HSBC. Um, and you remind me, it's the first time you've been in studio since COVID, really. Since 2019. And that's yeah. because, I guess, because you know, the Hong Kong base and everything, you're just a little bit behind in terms of the reopening. We then. haven't really started traveling until January this that's year, really so catching up now. And it's, well, it's just great to be back in London. It's Hasn't fantastic changed. to yes. see you, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, look, um, so much to ask you, and I think that's why we've probably got you in for two chats as well. So let me just start off with the big headline. Karen was just talking about the standout performer being the Nikkei as well. Um, the Bank of Japan surprised absolutely no one by keeping rates unchanged as well. So um, Kuroda to Ueda doesn't seem to have changed too much in terms of policy as well. Are the Japanese storing up a, a world of headaches later on down the line? If they wait too long, yes. But remember, they like to surprise. So they didn't do it this time. But we still think next quarter, for example, they might surprise. Because you want to change policy when the market is not aggressively positioned for a change. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw in, in December, they widened the YCC band, the yield curve control band, unexpectedly, just a few days before Christmas. Nobody saw it coming. And that's their modus operandi, right? They, they like to surprise the market. So uh, yes, the guidance is for we'll keep policy unchanged for a long time, but there is still that, that nagging doubt there. Might that not surprise in the next few Let months? Let me just get into that style that you just mentioned. The, the, the modus operandi in Europe and in United States is no surprises. We've got to flag everything up. You know, that's why you had a 93% expectations that the Fed was going to do nothing this time around, and everyone's queued up for July and what have you, certainly from the ECB as well. Why would the Japanese see merit in surprising everyone rather than actually uh, trying to dare I say it, forewarn. It's about not having your hand forced by the market. It's about uh, essentially having credibility. And they operate slightly differently. It's not setting interest rates. It's trying to keep yields in a certain range. Um, and that's why you need to manage expectations, uh, you know, not, not too much stoke expectations about a change. Otherwise, the market positions to a change. It starts to test the limits of the BOJ. The BOJ has to expend money to keep yields in the range. So better just do it when nobody's looking. Just move the band and then you're done. And that's why every meeting with the BOJ is a live meeting. Don't forget that. So don't go the speculators like the Saudi energy minister the other day, you know, calling on the speculators saying, hey, there's another trade in the market here. But uh, one of the, the points that was made today from the BOJ was that uncertainty regarding the Japanese economy is very high. That came across in the BOJ statement, which just does tell you they don't know what to do with the data as well. Central bankers are looking at what they see as a tight labour market, sticky inflation this time round, uh, the growth profile that's starting to slow. 
What does growth look like in Japan now? Because we've seen the stock market rally on hopes that corporate profits are going to be much better. You know, what's, what's growth looking like at this stage? Domestic side at the moment is not bad, actually. We see consumer spending still as tailwinds from reopening, for example. Despite high inflation, we see actually consumer spending, domestic demand being quite okay. The risk is twofold. One is, does the high inflation erode spending power faster than expected, right? Wages still rising less quickly than inflation. The other thing is external risk. And the BOJ comments are probably aimed primarily at the external side. China slowing, US is, you know, we're repricing the Fed. Where are we going, this global economy, right? They can't blame the Japanese central bankers for wondering where we go. We're all wondering where, where the global economy is headed right now. Well, let's get into the China story. I was talking to Bob Moritz from PwC on the sidelines of Viva this week, and I was asking him, look, you know, do you think the Chinese are going to come up with big fiscal stimulus this time around? He said, I wouldn't write it off. You know, who knows? I wouldn't write it off at this point. What do you think? Do we need to be thinking that the Chinese will do something that is very typical of the Chinese to write a very large check that spurs economic growth in China and beyond this year. So a lot of chatter at the moment. There is might be a big fiscal stimulus uh, bond issuance program coming. Don't get too carried away here. They're not going to bring out the bazooka, uh, not like we saw in past years. It's going to be drip feed and therefore uh, only a marginal improvement in growth. We'd be very surprised if Why? they come. Because many think that they're still on the page of doing what they used to do in terms of all that huge infrastructure spend, the, the Silk Road. Some are saying they haven't learnt the lessons that they need to broaden out the economy. So, so why would we think they wouldn't it's bring out the big It's keeping an eye position? on financial stability. We, now, we know there are debt issues among local governments. If you load up even more debt, you're just going to make the problem larger. And we also know that really the leadership around Xi Jinping is looking at financial stability. It's looking at the property market. That's why they tighten the screws in the property markets. They're worried about debt. So why then now essentially reflate the debt bubble? So I think they're going to be more I know cautious more questions for you on China and we're going to cover this after the break as well but it, I want to flip back to Japan if I can we put the currency up again the uh, the dollar yen if we can as well um, I appreciate that the Japanese have a huge export machine and you know that isn't going to hurt that doesn't appear to be hurting um, with at the moment but I mean why does no one in Japan appear from the Bank of Japan to the corporates downwards now does no one seem to care about the level of the currency because I'm sure externally there are a lot of partners who are saying, like they were when I was in Russia, I think for the G20 and G meetings at the, um, about a decade or so ago, there was a lot of concern about Japanese currency manipulation. Are we going to start seeing a bit of that coming back again? Well, to be fair, they've been very hands off on the currency, right? They were in fact worried about the rapid depreciation yeah, last policies, year. There are policies which... Um, with an FX level, yeah, we're not touching the FX, but there are policies which lead to a currency depreciation. Which you, sure, but you can still argue validly it's a byproduct of trying to reflate Japan, right? Japan has had decades of deflation, so yes, the currency is a weakness is a byproduct of that, but it's not direct manipulation. Why isn't Japan reflating? Just like the 101 for, for me and for our viewers as well, every other economy in the world has seen bursts of inflation. Uh, I mean, I, I see the Japanese have got inflation circa 2%, but it's arguable how long it's going to stay there and what are the causes of that. Why is the Japanese case one of exceptionalism? One word, demographics. And that's actually the future to come for all of us. And that is that if you have aging demographics to the same degree, demand just keeps shrinking. And that is very hard to have pricing power so in that economy. So you get drawdown on your Japanese postal savings at some stage, which means presumably in order to attract 
more financing for government-owned debt, which is now over 240% debt to GDP. The time bomb is still ticking, Frederick. Yeah, it's ticking, but it might be ticking for a few more years, so we don't worry about it just yet. We have essentially uh, still a buildup of savings because the population is aging, but people are still saving more for retirement. And so that's why they still have savings coming through. But you're right, tick, 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 tock. Can I ask you about friendshoring and technology in the region? Because the Japanese and South Koreans seem very much back in focus now as the Americans are looking for more components, more chips from the region that just sort of excludes China from here. Um, How do we think about that story being beneficial for the economic story here and now for both of those countries? So some of it is coming back to Japan and Korea, right, the high-end stuff. And we also seen particularly Japanese government, like the U.S. government, like the European governments, try to subsidize some of that investment coming back in the semiconductor space. But it is economically just a small part of the economies. It's not as if there's a rush of investment coming back. It's selectively high-tech. The vast majority of supply chains that are moving away from China, moving to Southeast Asia, moving to Mexico, a bit of India, Um, But remember, it's not necessarily that bad for China. China is gaining market share in other areas. We just talked about electric vehicles earlier on. That's where they're making inroads. So uh, there's enough there for China to defend its its global export market share. But the big winners are Southeast Asia and probably Mexico. Um, Karen, uh, whetted our appetite about China as well, Frederick. And I do want to ask you lots more questions about that, as indeed does Karen, of course. So um, we'll come back to that um, and we'll break down, well, we've already broken down the latest decision, or we can do a bit more on that on the BOJ as well. But the other thing I want to just remind you of is there's a, a, um, a good story online about China's economic recovery and stalling by Clement Tan as well. Come uh, have a look at that and also have a look at it with reference to our conversation coming up after the break because we've got another segment with Frederick Neumann. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Well, the euro has been rallying because the ECB has hiked rates for the eighth straight meeting, bringing borrowing costs to their highest level in 22 years. Uh, The central bank raised its inflation forecast to uh, 5.4% this year, with inflation seen above the ECB's target into 2025. Traders boosted bets on two more hikes. In fact, they only thought there was going to be one, didn't they? Um, Now I think they're penciling July and September, uh, even as the odds of further Fed tightening fall. Uh, the ECB president, Christine Lagarde, said a hike is highly likely, uh, which is very different from what we're discussing with the BOJ, not telling you what's going on. Anyway, Christine Lagarde said a hike is highly likely at next month's meeting. Are we done? Have we finished the journey? No. We're not at destination. Do we still have ground to cover? Yes, we have ground to cover. And I can even go further than that. I can tell you that bearing a material change to our baseline 
it is very likely the case that we will continue to increase rates in July, which probably doesn't come as a big surprise to you, but that's what I'm telling you. And this is so because we are determined to reach our target in a timely manner and to continue to apply the principles that we have applied today, data dependency, the three element of, elements of the reaction function, and moving meeting by meeting. Well, let's fill in a little bit more detail. The Bank of Japan maintained the country's ultra-easy monetary policy, as expected, despite stronger uh, than forecast inflation. Uh, the bank retained its overnight base rate at minus 0.1 and stuck to its policy of allowing the 10-year bond yields to fluctuate by 50 basis points either side of its 0% target. Uh, even more detail now coming from uh, our excellent colleague in Singapore, JP Ong. Hi, JP. Uh, good morning, Steve. Yes, and again, it wasn't really a big surprise that the Bank of Japan decided to keep policy rates unchanged. This was what many economists by worries were expecting to keep it with that, that negative territory, which ha it has been in that, in that spot for years now. And again, also against the backdrop of that high inflation you were actually talking about, or relatively higher inflation. Now, it doesn't look like much when you compare it to other places with 3.5% or 3.5% for their national CPI. But when you look at it, it's only been around this level sustainably since the fourth quarter of last year. To see it at these levels consistently, you'll have to go back to 2014 to see where it actually was. Now, according to the Bank of Japan, they do think that uh, core inflation specifically will start to come down towards the end of the year or will start to ease. These inflationary pressure will ease. So if they do decide to hike rates to try and contain inflation, well, it might be moot because time will do that actually for them. There's also the specter of economic growth, which Japan is starting to see signs of uh, robustly uh, for the first time in, well, decades really. And thus, if they decide to tighten policy or even just uh, raise hike rates or even um, uh, um, tweak the yield curve control to try and tighten policy, this could actually endanger this much much needed and much needed anticipated economic growth that they're starting to finally see some green shoots of. But let's take a look at what that decision actually did for the, for the Nikkei 225 today. You did allude that it, the Nikkei 225 did quite well in today's session, but take a look at that. It actually started out um, Friday in the red by as much as half a percent, but after the Bank of Japan's announcement, it actually started to climb up and is now about, uh, about half a percent in the green at the moment out in Tokyo as we await, uh, as, as we await uh, markets there to wrap up for the trading week. The Japanese yen also a similar story. We did see a little bit of strength at the start of the, the trading session here in Asia. But again, after the Bank of Japan said, nope, we are leaving rates unchanged and we are going to keep uh, stay cautious with regards to our monetary policy and loose. Well, you start to see the, uh, the, the Japanese yen start to weaken. I did speak to a trader, a Japanese trader based here in Singapore, actually. And he did say that there's another element to watch out for. The Japanese deficit, the trade deficit, which, ha which has uh, uh, really concerned Japanese economy watchers for quite a while. There are also signs that it's starting to significantly shrink and contract also and could return to trade surplus and thus also the, the, uh, the uh, at least the, the case for a weaker yen actually supporting these exports and improving that trade deficit. Well, that's something that might also play into the minds of, of economy watchers and policymakers out in Tokyo. But keep in mind that again, the, this volatility surrounding the Japanese yen is something that they're also watching. Remember that the end of last month, there was that meeting between the Ministry of Finance and the BOJ and other uh, policy uh, po uh, policymakers in Japan to talk about the yen weakness, actually. And they've also said that if it weakens excessively or volatility goes towards the downside too much, well, there might be an intervention, which also supports Frederick Newman's uh, assertion a while ago in your interview that, yes, every BOJ meeting is a live meeting, including this one, despite the fact that they've left rates unchanged for the better part of the last couple of years. Back to you.
Excellent work. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right, we'll go back to China now. China could issue as much as one trillion yuan's worth of special treasury bonds in a bid to shore up its ailing economy. Uh, this according to the Wall Street Journal and Reuters, which reports the government is soliciting proposals uh, from economists and advisors on how to rejuvenate the world's second largest economy. This after the PBOC cut the interest rate on its medium-term lending facility for the first time in 10 months. Let's get back to Frederick Neumann about this, Chief uh, Asia Economist at HSBC. Frederick, I have a real conundrum on China, and, and I need you to, or someone to solve it for me as well. What on earth is going wrong? This was supposed to be a magnificent reopening uh, uh, on trade, the data's not there. On exports, the data's not there. That may be about global demand. On domestically, the Chinese look like they want to save a little bit rather than spend. On, on, on the employment data, how can youth unemployment in China, which ostensibly apparently is growing over 5%, be 20.8%? There's something that doesn't make sense to me. On a reopening story, we're talking about more fiscal stimulus and more monetary stimulus. That's right. There was just, uh, we lost momentum. We tripped up in the second quarter. And as you rightly say, it's every single part of the economy. I mean, there are a few bright spots here and there, but broadly speaking, housing is slowed, infrastructure looks wobbly, consumer spending, services are doing great, but consumer spending on goods is just not coming through. Why is that? It is in part because the confidence is lacking. People have essentially not received the fiscal transfers during the pandemic that we received in other countries. People have dipped into their savings. Now they're coming out of it. They're very cautious about spending. And I think we all underestimated how much sort of reluctance there is to, to kind of go out and splurge. So, and we need to still explain something about savings rates as well, because unlike you Germans, you love saving because you love saving. And, and I have no problem with that. I think mean, that's an admirable characteristic which us Brits don't have. You know, you frequently save at double digit levels of salary, whereas the Brits and the Americans, it can easily be 4% on a good day. The Chinese save because, they, not because they, they like the Germans, they like saving. They, they save because they don't have the same social security uh, support and a net to support that, that the Western nations have as well. So when they save, they worry about their future. And we mentioned already about the Japanese demographics. It's the same story in China as well. It's exactly the same story. In fact, the fastest growing cohort within China is the 50-year-olds, uh, right? So there's 70 million more 50-year-olds than other kind of gauge cohorts. And these are people who worry about retirement, which is coming up in 10 years. Kids out of the house. And now, well, now you're starting to think about retirement. And you say, go up. That's why actually structurally since 2015 the saving rate has gone up. It's again it's demographics. Demographics are a powerful powerful driver of this but of course that uh, hinders rebalancing towards consumption. It means that we're coming out of pandemic, which was very traumatic. I mean, not just for Chinese, for everybody. Um, and, and you sort of say, well, I got to put more money aside. Plus, the real estate market is looking wobbly. So any money you put into the real estate market is not going to you know, increase uh, dramatically. So maybe I'll just save a bit more because, you know, so, so we have these feedback loops, which are tremendous headwinds for the Chinese economy. And so the stimulus would be designed to kind of overcome this, to give people a boost of confidence. Yes, it's going up again. And I think that's where we really, the government's trying to nudge things along now with interest rate cuts, with potentially more fiscal spending, and even with another triple R cut potentially coming up soon.
On that note, if I could just drill into the unemployment rate among young people, what, 16 to 24, this is unusual. You talk about older people saving for retirement. They may still have the costs to bear for some of the, the younger people in their families if they're not getting jobs, and 20-plus percent tells that there is a, a pretty big structural issue playing out. Over the years, we used to speak about China and the migration problem from uh, certain cities and towns, that there needed to be enough jobs so there was stability. It feels as though this could be the next challenge, the sort of instability coming through from youth unemployment. If uh, people cannot find decent jobs with job security, the right pay when they can live in the, the cities they want to live in and cover their overheads, this is a huge challenge. How does it contribute to instability in China? So it's a challenge. But one thing I think to note is that this is uh, not a broad-based unemployment issue because the migrant workers actually are back working. Their migrant work is back to 2019 levels. It's really a concentrated issue among the young. And this is primarily a mismatch problem. We're graduating 11 million people from universities every year, highly qualified actually. And there's not the, the right jobs available. There's job for lower-end work, blue-collar work, but it's not jobs for white-collar work. And that's a mismatch in the labor market. And they need to solve this by creating the right types of jobs. And they're obviously focused on this. But it's going to be a long slog because guess what? Now we're graduating another 11 million and next year will be probably 12 million. So that number keeps growing with the expansion of university education. Um, but I do think the government is quite sensitive to that. And they time again say we need to create the jobs. So state and enterprise are creating the jobs. Civil service is creating the job. Ideally, we have the private sector do that as well, but that's been a bit sluggish at the moment. Plenty of jobs elsewhere if uh, they're looking to try and uh, come up with some alternatives and loosen the tight labour markets in Western countries. But let me ask you about uh, deflation, because uh, China did export deflation to the world. Now we've got supply chains cracking, a lot of companies looking to nearshore, homeshore, friendshore. That's away from China at a time when the country's just not firing on all cylinders. What's the deflationary export story looking like this? time around have we just lost all hope that we're going to get some of that deflation from China this time? No, we are getting deflation. In fact, China is a deflationary uh, force this year for the global economy. And not just because of commodity prices, because the Chinese economy is not buying as many commodities as we used to. So commodity prices are coming off from energy to iron ore to other commodities. But it's also in the goods sector because Chinese goods consumption is not very strong. Domestic investment isn't very strong. The currency is weaker. Chinese exporters now essentially exporting very competitively to the rest of the world. And yes, we all talk about offshoring and nearshoring, etc. At the moment, that's not the big story. The big story is cheaper Chinese exports coming out puts competitive pressure on other exporters and it just means that goods prices are coming down more rapidly than we'd have thought six months ago. And so there's a disinflationary element coming through, which might actually not be a bad thing for Western consumers, but of course it's a problem for other EM producers that compete directly with China. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.